Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. You shall observe this rite as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he has passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed down and worshipped. So that is, of course, uh, a recounting of the first Passover, as told in Exodus chapter 12. And I think it really signifies this idea of sanctification, this idea of you know, being uh, pulled out, being separate. It even says being passed over. And this idea of a, a red door, uh, I think, is a really fitting name, uh, a good, nice name for a church. And I am actually joined today by a man who happens to pastor a church by that very name. Uh, so I'm joined by Adam Meredith. Uh, welcome, Adam. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, coming along and that idea of a red door mm. was I did I hit the mark in terms of that uh, sanctification? Yeah, I, I think you're spot, spot on. Uh, the wonderful picture about uh, us as a church when people ask the store uh, the question, what's with the name? Like it's a little bit odd to the uninitiated. Um, not everyone can read it perfectly like you just did and know, and know the story too. So when uh, people have asked well, what's with the name, it's actually given us an interesting conversation starter to describe the nature of the gospel in the sense that, uh, and I always use the phrasing of rescue, you know, that God was trying to rescue his people out of slavery into freedom. And that process involved, uh, you know, these different plagues coming and curses coming. And that um, the last plague, the most devastating plague, is that spirit of death that you described passing over the whole na nation of Egypt. Uh, but God didn't want his people to perish where the firstborn would, be, would perish if the, the spirit of death came. That, that, that picture of being rescued from death and the New Testament picture of the lamb being Jesus, the lamb of God who was slain, is now the, the New Testament mechanism for us to be rescued from death, from sin, from this. So this the picture of sanctification, I think, is very apt because we are being rescued, not just in a sense of our old human condition, but being rescued into a new place of being Christ-like, of being transformed into his image because we're, our hearts are transformed. So that's been a lovely conversation for people who don't necessarily know how to talk about the gospel, but when someone says, hey, what's with your church name? Bang, we're in, you know. So we kind of teach people who come to Red Door about how do, you, how do you use that conversation starter as a means to have a spiritual conversation. Um, and I think my wife always says, well, actually, every, you and I are actually doorways for people to encounter Jesus. So it's almost like we're all red doors, actually. We're, we're means by which people can discover who Jesus is and, and his love and his... Uh, acceptance of us because of what he's done on the cross, his resurrection, uh, his ascension. So, yeah, that's, I don't know if that answers the question. but No, yeah, that's great. I love that. That's, um, that's really cool. It kind of signifies, yeah, kind of God's unique, chosen, special people. Yeah. Um, so does your church have a red door? <laughs> that's what people say. They come and because we've got a, a roller door, like it's in an industrial area. So the roller door comes down and sort of covers the front door, but that roller door is red. So they hear, oh, did you, did you call the church red door because you're a red roller door? I said, no, I actually called it red door first. And then we painted it uh, red, but not with um, lamb's blood, just FYI, it's uh, Dulux. <laughs> oh, great, because we're trying to get sponsorship from Dulux. Oh, really? Okay, we'll just promote, promote them a little more. <laughs> 
Oh, I don't, maybe they can send us some paint and we'll paint our <laughs> offices. But do, do you have hyssop and all the various herbs? <laughs> we do this thing um, at Easter called the Easter walkthrough. And it's a kind of like an old school Stations of the Cross experience. I think you've been once. I have. We yeah. went this year and uh, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was really good. Yeah, I think, I think when people understand the nature of Passover, the meal of Passover and Jesus' Last Supper being a Passover meal, I think that explanation speaks very loudly about what Jesus was about to accomplish on the, on the cross when he said, this is my body, this is my blood in the cup. Uh, it's a very powerful picture. And hyssop, you know, is a massive part of the imagery that connects the old to the new in terms of that journey. So yeah. to answer your question, I don't know if we've got hyssop. I, th I think that's quite hard to find in Western Australia. Uh, I think we've used, um, what's the herb we use for lamb? Um, yeah, rosemary? Rosemary, you know, yeah. sticks and so forth. Well, yeah, because I don't really know what hyssop actually is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Some plant. Yeah, some plant. That resembles a paintbrush, you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, talking about journey, um, can I ask about your journey? Like, how did you end up at Red Door? How yeah. did you end up with this community? Yeah, great question. Um, so I'm a Perth boy, born in Perth. Um, my mum and dad uh, actually divorced when I was eight years old. And at that juncture, I had a, um, a brother who was a newborn. So I had my brother who's eight years younger than me. And Adam kind of got thrown into pseudo-fatherhood as you've got this, you know, mum's single mum, you know, and you're eight years older. So I suppose my early years was very much taking responsibility um, for my younger brother and so forth and so on. And, and that kind of led me to wanting to actually out of, out of, went to uni and did accounting and finance because um, my now stepdad was the first person I ever met who'd done a tertiary degree. I, I, we, we, were, we were living in Craigie, and uh, I think in my high school, maybe four of us went to university. So it wasn't, you know what I'm trying to say, it wasn't a culture of tertiary study. So when I met my stepdad, he was, he was part of this vision of going to doing more study. That was, I like I think about that now and go, oh, what? Uh, like ignorance, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but that sort of set me on a trajectory of, of more study, even though it was accounting and finance. And we didn't have a faith uh, in Jesus in that, in that early journey. And um, I then left uni and went and worked at um, an auditing firm called Ernst & Young. And so I was, you know, uh, what they would call a, a green pen, uh, you know, bean counter kind of thing. Audit, audit. It was a good experience. You got to see a lot of different businesses. And in that time, I was like, I was a work hard, but a play even harder kind of guy, you know, in the sense of, um, someone was asking me the other day, you know, the, the, the drinking dynamic on a Friday, see if you can spend your entire month's salary um, after, on a Friday night, right? Really, really broken. Um, I was dating my now wife and our relationship was on again, off again. And, and I, I would say I had a very nominal faith. If you asked me, if it was God real? I would tell you yes, but it wasn't living and vibrant. Then I can't explain it other than the observation that within the space of one month, when I was working at Ernst Young, Jesus walked in the front door of our home. And within one month, my mum, my stepdad, my brother, myself, we all had an encounter with Jesus that shifted everything, like everything. And I remember people I worked with at Ernst Young were just totally... Actually, um, upset with me because I'd changed so, I was so different. Who is this? We knew Adam as the work hard, play hard guy, and now he's operating through a, almost a different operating system. You know, who, what has happened? Um, in about a month after my now wife, Dale, she had an encounter with Jesus. We, we broke off for a little while and um, uh, we, were, we, were, we were dating Jesus. Well, I'll probably say we were, we were married to Jesus, right? We were having this encounter with him. And he was doing heart surgery in both of us and we were changing and a couple of circumstances happened where we ended up um, getting back together and it was kind of in that time frame of uh, we then got married and I went to, when we got, when we, when we got, our family kind of had that encounter with Jesus, we were going to an Anglican church in Karanup and it was known as that Anglican church was like the Anglican church or because it was the most Pentecostal Anglican church you've ever seen in your life. Like it was odd. Like it was outside the stereotype. Um, they had like a really traditional service, 
but it was like almost like mainline Pentecostalism, you know. Uh, and I suppose from my point of view, it was an amazing time as Jesus was not just a, a book to be read, but a person to experience. And um, we uh, started uh, kind of doing youth group in that time and started with five kids who were just a babysitting club on the, on the Friday night into like 50 kids all loving Jesus, salvations. It was like a little mini revival in Karanov happening and we loved it. Like the creative part of Adam, which God, God had always had in my heart to, to be a creative person, just started to get more airplay. I don't know if you know that, you know, if you're creative in accounting, you probably go to jail. You know, there's this, 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 this creativity and accounting don't really go together, right? So it was in that moment that uh, Dale was part of Riverview Church at that time and I was part of this Anglican church and our friendship circles were changing and we been married about a year and we now we're both going to Riverview, part of the community there. Fast forward maybe 18 months from that point and Phil Baker, who was the senior minister there at the time, said, Adam, do you want to be the media director at Riverview Church, which was television, which was, you know, the creative art space. And uh, accounting is always one of those things you can go back to. So I said yes. And suddenly now I'm uh, working in a church. I had no television experience, so I'm like learning on the job. Um, and this is kind of the long story of more... You know, how did I find myself in a pastoral role in a church was I found myself enjoying communication, pastoring people, connecting people. And what started as a media thing ended up becoming more like, oh, I love discipling people. I love being a pastor. And so uh, what happened was that Riverview had a, a number of campuses. One was in the northern suburbs, one was in the southern suburbs, yeah, specifically Coburn. And we were asked to be the campus pastors of Riverview South. Uh, so we did that for like six years and, and loved it, loved the smaller environment, loved, uh, I suppose, the, the proximity to people. And, uh, and Phil Baker was, was sick and leadership changed and all of a sudden they wanted to release the campuses to become their own unique churches. And uh, we were asked, my wife and I, whether we would lead, a, lead that community as a distinctly... Uh, I suppose, unique church from what was Riverview. So we had a few names on the, on, the, on the cards and Adam came up with this idea of the Red Door Community Church and that was 10 years ago. We've been doing Red Door for, for 10 years now. So that's kind of a blow by blow. Uh, probably a bit too much detail there, Aaron. I'm sorry. No, that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't be, don't be sorry. That was, that was really, really good. Uh, that story from yeah, accountant to media director to now pastor, uh, that's, that's really cool. It's, it's, it's interesting to just kind of see how surprising that journey kind of takes. You never really know where you're gonna end up. Yeah, I, I remember being, when we were at Karen Up Anglican, a small church, right, tiny church. And at the time when we moved from Karen Up Anglican to Riverview Church, and you experience big church, you know, like, you know, 3,000, 4,000 people. Looking back, I'm like, why would you do small church? Big church is where it's at. Right, this is my this is my journey. Right, then all of a sudden, Riverview decided to do these small campuses. Right, so we're, now I'm thrust back into a small environment and going, why would you do big church? Small church is where it's at, you know. And I, I, I please hear me. I, I'm certainly got nothing against big church, but I know from my journey around the pastoral space, discipleship space, is that there's such power in proximity, connecting with people one on one, knowing their journey, and I think that's just flat out easier in a smaller environment. Um, and I think the nature of the incarnation, Jesus being with us, I think needs to be embodied in how we shepherd people. And I've just really loved that. But now Red Door's growing, you see, so I'm not quite sure what's going on. <laughs> you know, give, me the, give me the small again. That's, I mean, that's the challenge, isn't it, with larger churches? How do you remain small? Um, but yeah, no, loving what we're doing. It's been a wonderful journey. God's been so gracious to us uh, in allowing us to partner with what He's doing. Um, not necessarily asking just God, come and bless what we're doing, Lord. Actually, what are you doing, Lord? And that's been the adventure, I suppose. I think that's really helpful to remember that we're partnering with what God is already doing. Already doing, 100%. He's, a, he's already there. Um, and that's really quite a privilege, I guess. Oh, so true. Um, so true. But yeah, and what, also what you're saying about kind of 
big church and small church, I think they've both got their strengths. They've both got, yeah. they've both got their challenges. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, um, but it's, it's positive to hear that Red Door's growing as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're coming out of the COVID time, so it's been a, a trickier season, you know, and how to, how to continue to disciple in the midst of a changing environment. But, but yeah, I think we're not just growing in a sense of numerical, which I don't really give much credence for, but are we growing as followers of Jesus in our commitment to him? COVID definitely threw a few curveballs to churches because that wasn't really something that Acts yeah. <laughs> necessarily deals with. But... Yeah, that's right. No, we can see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, talking about kind of church practice, yeah. um, I was just wondering, do you have a particular pastoral philosophy or emphases or... I think that what's interesting about church leadership is you end up discovering where your sweet spot is or where you're gra graced for. And we can talk about different five-fold aspects of ministry, you know. For, for Adam, I find myself uh, being primarily pastoral and secondary sort of more apostolic in nature. And so it's that pastoral space that I where others would go, you know, oh, I can only see one person a month and I'm drained, you know, and I find that really exhilarating actually, hearing people's stories and and it's in the space of calamity I find is the best discipleship work made possible. But you can only do that when you have trust with people, when we see um, that journey not like a service that I'm coming to get and consume, but rather I'm a part of a family where I'm loved, cared for and I belong. If you ask me about ministry philosophy, I, I think we do, a, 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 we do we spend a lot of energy helping people feel safe, they can trust and they belong, in order that when you have those moments of connection, um, you're not having to build trust. You actually go straight into, okay, what's at the core of what's really going on? We can do a lot of behavior, modification stuff, but really that's, that's irrelevant. Like at the heart, what's happening? So I think in terms of pastoral um, methodology is just asking the question, God, what are you doing at the core of someone's being? Like, what's going on really? And I suppose that's led us to a place of, of asking the more deeper questions in people. Uh, and that I've found an absolute blessing. I think when you're allowed into people's lives, it's like, what the heck? Why are you allowing me into this space? And I think when you see a heart transform, that's when you see the behavior modification stuff, that'll come. That's just, that's just an automatic pilot. But when the heart's changed, that's when you, when you see the beauty of Jesus doing the heart surgery. And you're just like the, almost like the bystander. You know, you're just like the, you know, the, the, the sign, the pointing, the, the sign that points, you know, and, and helping people see clearly. Um, that's been more my experience. That means a lot of listening. That means a lot of time. That means not talking too much and giving them the three-point answers about how they should live their life and change their behavior. Um, um, but asking, God, what are you doing in this person? And where do they need to be healed? Where do they need then some instruction beyond that? Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's been more of my experience of it. Because um, we can do a lot of head discussion, and that's not wrong. It's good, it's good head discussion. But if we can move towards the heart for people, um, a transformed heart will be like a sponge. They'll want to know more about who Jesus is when their heart's postured towards, oh, I need to know the answers here um, to life and life abundantly. Is it difficult to know or to be able to discern uh, what needs healing in a person or hearing from God? Uh, are there any challenges in that? One of the things that I uh, stumbled across years ago was a Timothy Keller session on idols of the heart. And he was distinguishing between surface idols and core idols, like as we talk about the core of someone's being. That session has been quite transformational in uh, how I approach the, uh, the adventure of discovery like the surface idols are like, they're the ones that kind of get the, the attention because they're on the surface and you can see them, but they're all pointing to something deeper. <laughs> so the core idols are, are comfort, approval, control, and power. And ultimately, these aren't necessarily things that are wrong to desire, 
right? But how we meet a right need is like the way we meet those needs is critical. Um, so actually, the answer is found in Jesus answering those core needs. But where surface idols arrive is where we, we're using money to feed our idol of power, feed our idol of control, feed our idol of comfort uh, or approval. Um, so I think that's just been really helpful to, to begin to help people identify what's your motivational driver in the core of your being. So thanks, Tim, for that. That was really great. You know, I really appreciate that input. I mean, he's got some great content, um, not just on a theological level, but also a pastoral supervision level. I thought, felt that's been really helpful. Um, so that's been, that's been good. Like, how do you get to the heart of the matter? Like, yeah, what, what are the motivational drivers? Yeah, so I guess that can take some time. And oh, you mentioned listening, but I guess that's that real careful thought, yeah. which can take... Uh, some time and I guess it's very relational as well yeah 100% 100% and I think that's probably been part of our one of the markers of our Red Door family is that we are very relational so if you're coming wanting to consume something and not really give yourself into a into a family it might not be the Red Door might not be the place for you right but I think the biblical picture of family is very obviously God's way of doing things. We are, we are born into a family. We are both spiritually and physically, we are born into it. And so, so that, by, by definition, that's a very relational experience. Um, potentially, the church has gone more down the way of like a product consumer dynamic rather than returning to family. Um, and I'm not saying we've arrived, by the way, as I talk about this. It's like a, 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 trying to discover you know, these ancient pathways uh, as you continue to help people grow towards Christ. Yeah, well, the image of like, the body of Christ, uh, that kind of popped into my mind just then. Mm. Um, those connections and it's, it's actually quite a, I guess, an intimate sort of uh, yeah, connection to one another. Yeah. That's part of a, part of a bigger whole. Uh, but I guess in that sort of model and trying to really get into the heart uh, of the matter, mm. uh, there's a sense of vulnerability um, and so, uh, as a pastor, um, I guess you have to really create that space of trust and of, of safety and security. Mm. Uh, is that something that uh, you try to do or is that, is that hard oh, or is that... <laughs> oh, mate, this is a great question. We, we talk about that a lot, but it's funny when you... Because people say to us, um, oh, you're very authentic. And the problem with a bit when you say, oh, thank you, um, like that's a, it's a compliment. But in some ways, if you try to be authentic, you're not really being authentic. You know what I mean? So authenticity is not something you put on, so to speak. You're either that way or you're not. Uh, and I think the, one of the reasons why we've had some, maybe some success in, our, in creating that environment is my wife and I are reasonably transparent. Um, when I say reasonably, I'm, I'm also saying, well, what, how do you measure that? You know, <laughs> we can grow in that too, right? Um, but I think the power of transparency is far greater than the power of perfection. So the more that you're transparent and vulnerable, people are actually drawn to that, like you just said. What perfection does is it says subconsciously to people, oh, I could never be as good as that. So it actually pushes people away from you. So when you try and put your Christian mask on to present, I've got it all together, you're actually um, you know, counteracting the process of actually drawing people closer together. So the more vulnerable, transparent you are, it actually builds community. So I think that's part of what we've seen in this journey. Um, but again, it's, it's, it starts with the transformation of the heart. Like It's not something you just behavior management. You know, I want to be a vulnerable person. Well, yes, good. But hey, let's get honest with God first and allow him to do the deep work in all of us. So the power of transparency is greater than the power, power of perfection. Of perfection. Yeah, yeah, no, I really like that. that that's really, really good. Because we, we on the surface think that perfection is powerful. Yeah. Like, let me present to you, I've got it all together and that's my posture of power. Like, yeah. No, no, not in the kingdom. The kingdom is in, uh, my weak, in my weakness, his strength is made perfect, which is, you know, the heart of the kingdom, yeah. the right way up. 
not upside down, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's really, really good. I think Jesus said quite a lot about that as well, about you know making sure that it's what's on the inside that's uh, that's what's good. Um, and I think that's part of kind of what's going on in the in culture as well. People are uh, craving that authenticity. People are craving that sort of real uh, vulnerability, that transparency, um, and is potentially the danger of kind of formulaic ways of doing ministry, of doing church, of being a Christian, you know, ticking the boxes and getting out of there. Yeah. Um, so it's really good to hear. But like you say, like you can't aim for authenticity. It's yeah. you either are or you aren't. Correct. That can be a challenge. Yeah, and I think that's the choice for every leader, you know, how, how authentic are we willing to be? Um, and discernment, you know, like there's people that you need to be seriously authentic with, right? But at the same time, understanding what does authenticity look and transparency look like in a larger gathering? What does it look like in a medium-sized gathering? It doesn't mean manipulation. It just means I want to cultivate a transparent lifestyle with, with the people who I'm closest with. And that should affect the fact that oh, there's layers of transparency when I'm in a larger setting. You understand what I mean? Because sometimes it's just inappropriate to talk about how broken I am in front of everyone. But it certainly doesn't mean I'm not talking about it with the right people. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, and I think that's a journey for every leader, every leader to take uh, in pastoral ministry. Yeah, absolutely. Ed. For yourself as a pastor, I guess that's the sense where you kind of need to protect yourself a little bit and um, you need to find ways to look after yourself. <laughs> Are there any sort of self-care things that you do to recharge? Because uh, yeah. it sounds like you're with people a lot and uh, opening yourself up to people quite a bit, all that pastoral mm. journey and stuff. But what does, what does Adam do to, mm. to recharge? Well, I think probably three years ago, we started a Sabbath rhythm. So for us, you know, it looks like Thursday night, uh, five o'clock, tools down, if you watch the block. Uh, <laughs> um, and we have like a, a, a sort of a lockbox where all the phones and devices kind of go in there. And, and then we uh, begin a, like a, a long dinner. So Thursday nights are always this uh, journey of um, reflection, dinner, communion, um, uh, and the dinner doesn't just last for half an hour sitting at the dinner table, it's like, you know, a four hour long dinner where we enjoy each other's company, where we speak words of blessing over everyone who's in, in the room, and we invite people into that space. So it's very normal now. That for me has become a sanctuary, just that Thursday night into Friday morning. I, my day off's a Friday, so uh, Friday's very gentle. That rhythm, I think, is, has kept us uh, and, and sustained us in that journey. Uh, almost like I'm protective over that. Someone asked me, Do you want, can you come and speak at this thing on Thursday night, Adam? No, nope, sorry. You know, it's, it's my, I don't, I've protected it. Uh, and so that's probably one key, key element. Having people that you're sharing, you're, you're like confessing sin to. I haven't arrived. I'm in need of Jesus as much as today as I did when I first believed. And having close people to confess sin to, um, who can declare forgiveness, you know, and, and, and having that has been another key element. So if you're listening to this and you don't have someone you're praying with, reading scripture with, and confessing sin with, I mean, you need to get someone. Like, cultivate that habit in your world. Uh, that's been a key thing. And um, yeah, when the NBA season's on, watching lots of NBA has been a helpful tool. <laughs> I love basketball. Yeah. So I think it's things like that, you know. Um, yeah, that's all really good advice. That's, that's, yeah, that sounds I mean, great. I think what we always work out of a place of rest is the biblical model. So that's kind of been what we're trying to cultivate as opposed to working so hard to get that holiday. You know, no, no, actually rest and work in that rhythm. They'll keep you for the long term. Yeah. Um, and people might, people might go, oh, it's a Jewish tradition, bro. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, before it was Jewish, it was probably kingdom. Yeah. You know, like it was a universal principle that God gave to his people initially. 
Um, yeah, so anyway, sorry, that was a side point. I'm not going to yeah, get no, on my... Good, yeah, no, that's good. But, I mean, Jesus talks about keeping the Sabbath and, um, as well. So having that, that time for reflection and just recharging is mm. just so important. Yeah. It's just so important. But I was going to ask, uh, which NBA team do you support? Um, Golden State Warriors on my team, which sounds very um, parochial. But to be honest, I, I enjoy... I enjoy the game, so I actually watch all teams rather than just sort of one. So yeah. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, yeah, I support the Spurs. Oh yeah. San Antonio. Nice. I saw I saw a live game once. Um, Lakers versus San Antonio Spurs at the Staples Center, and and Kobe Bryant was playing. So it was one my, uh, <laughs> my my claim to fame. <laughs> when, when was that? Oh, that was. It was actually when Riverview had a campus in Orange County in um, Los Angeles. And uh, I was over there on the media side of things trying to make the video thing work, which was, oh, gee, maybe 2004, 2005, somewhere around there. So a long time ago. Good years for the Spurs. Yeah, well, that was yep. so strong back then. Yeah, so you also saw Tim Duncan. And oh, man. <laughs> that would have been, yeah. been awesome. So good. Uh, yeah, no, that's... That's great. <laughs> the d- diversion of the MBA conversation. We could be here all day. <laughs> uh, but one other thing I wanted to talk about was um, creativity and creativity in the church and mm. Christian ministry. And I know that you're quite creative as well. Mm. You've already mentioned that. Um, can I ask why, why should we care about being creative? Yeah. It's a great question. Before we started recording, you said that everyone's creative and I completely agree. Um, my wife doesn't like me using the word creative because she's not necessarily artistic, but she's creative. You should see her spreadsheets. They're very creative, you know. So I think creative is a great word and I love it. But I think what's helped me frame some of those thoughts is a movement towards understanding beauty and using beauty as a frame uh, in, our, in, in the larger context of creativity because ultimately the gospel is the most beautifulest thing on the face of the earth, universe. It's the greatest. It's the beautifulest. Beautifulest? Is that a word? Um, sure. It's full of beauty. There's nothing more beautiful than Jesus' death for us, resurrection, ascension. There's nothing more beautiful than that. Um, I read this book which was very uh, formative in this thought and it, the author's um, Brian Zand and it's called Beauty Will Save the City. Beauty Will Save the City. Don't quote me on that. Sorry, Brian, if I got the, if I got the name wrong. Um, in there, in a very simplified way, he describes um, works of truth, works of goodness, and works of beauty. And the church is like, has you know, more, more recent history. Um, here we, as we are, sit here in, in, in Vos College, or sorry, Morling College, Vos Campus. Is that how we say it? Um, you know, works of truth, proclamations of truth, theology. Uh, I think the church has seen some great examples of that. Um, examples of works of goodness, uh, feeding the homeless, caring for the poor, uh, looking after the vulnerable. The church has seen great actions of that. But actions of beauty, um, we, is a, in more recent history, it's been a fairly bland landscape. If you go back, you know, 200 years, Renaissance time, you see works of beauty everywhere within the construct of the church, the cathedrals, the architecture you mentioned before. Um, but I so the wonderful thing about beauty in a, today's culture is that beauty speaks where truth and goodness may have a voice that's slightly quiet in our society today. So in terms of, uh, you know, proclamations of truth, well, we live in such a you know, a, a pluralistic society, well, which truth is truth? Is your truth my truth? And what's true for me is not true for you. And so it, there's a sense of skepticism about statements of truth, uh, absolute truths. And then you think about works of goodness, there's a skepticism around, well, what's the catch here? You know, like, what am I, what am I yes, I'm receiving this, but what am I having, what am I purchasing by, you know what I'm trying to say? There's a, I think there's a skepticism in our society about goods of works of goodness in terms of what we're doing in our world to uh, you know, be kind, be helpful. But beauty cuts through those two in a way that jars the emotion and causes people to maybe be awakened to some deeper realities 
Like, why is the Grand Canyon beautiful and people still flock there to this very day? No one can really articulate other than the fact that it is beautiful. But you don't sit there thinking, well, what's the absolute truth about all this, you know? And, but there's something appealing. People still flock to it. And that's, Grand Canyon's beautiful, sure. But the gospel makes the Grand Canyon look ugly compared to the beauty of the gospel. And so how we, how we uh, you know, prepare the saints for the work of ministry in the context of art- artistry within a city, I think is the question that appeals to me. Um, I think we can tend to move artistry and go, how are we going to do art in our 90-minute service? I would say it's a very small, limited question when not everyone's walking in through the building, you know. <laughs> but when we think about what can we do in our city that's beautiful, but it's linked to gospel. Beautiful expressions of the gospel, I think, is where there's so much opportunity. And uh, there's people who are artists in, our, in the body of Christ who are sitting almost dormant. And how can we awaken some of that in our city, I think, would be something that I would love to be a part of. Have, have, are we seeing that yet? No. Um, um, but I certainly see that as a potential need and a, a potential opportunity in our city for sure. Yeah, that would be a great thing to be a part of. Um, and I think with cre- like being creative, creative mm. is creating. Yeah. <laughs> and we are made in the image and likeness of a creative God, yeah, in, the sen- in the sense that God creates and uh, you know, he created things like the Grand Canyon, and, but also the gospel and you know, Jesus' death and resurrection. Mm. And, yeah, how can, we be, how can we be a part of that? Are there any practical things that you do uh, as a part of Red Door or just in your broader ministry? Yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting journey discovering how, what part does Red Door play in relationship to those thoughts. Um, and part of where we've been exploring is it's connected to that relational thing, actually. Because the more you understand what God's already placed in people's hearts to do, and if the role of the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, surely church can be an activator, releaser dynamic in people's art, like in artists, in order for them to be released into the city to be able to do the thing that God's already put in their hearts to do. And so what we've in, I've enjoyed recently is finding out those dreams and aspirations that aren't just... I want to do this pretty painting. It's when it's connected to gospel that I go, oh man, how can we equip, release, finance, um, promote, um, encourage, you know, all those types of things in order that they could go and do that very thing. But Adam, that doesn't affect this, your 90 minute service. Um, I don't care. Uh, what I care more about is those people stepping into the calling that God has for them and a love for our city, that there would be an expression of gospel artistry, gospel creativity. So there's things like we've done a, um, a jazz recording called the Genesis Project, using the context of jazz music to share the gospel. Like, how do you do that when there's no words or lyrics, right? Um, but when you're listening to the album, uh, there's like a compendium that you read, sort of a collision of the Genesis story, creation, you know, fall, redemption, into the music and and the Genesis story itself. itself. I, I was actually there where that was oh, really? performed. Yeah. yeah okay. um, and then you had a, a live artist as yeah. well. Yeah, as well, and which is sort of became like the cover cover artwork kind of idea. Um, so that I mean that was a you know you have goes at trying to do these things whether they were perfect or not. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but certainly the adventure of that has been. Um, uh, a real joy to be a part of. Uh, there's a couple of guys who are recording an album. Um, let me rephrase. They're recording nine songs that we're releasing in song order over time because they want to attach the story of each song with, with videos and testimony and, um, and the creative, I suppose. Each song has its own kind of well of creativity attached to it, you know, not just the song itself. So part of that has been, you know, helping them in the studio and helping them record stuff and 
Um, so if you are listening, you know, it's called Tempest Calm. Tempest Calm is the band's name. And, and it's, it's, yeah, you, you listen to the music and you go, mm, this wouldn't happen. This, we are going to play this in a service. You know? <laughs> no, of course you're not. It's actually more of a contemporary uh, modern music. So Yeah, it's been great to be involved in that. Uh, and encouraging the people who call Red Door home in those those kind of facets. Yeah, that's very cool. Because the benefit of kind of these new artistic sort of expressions of the gospel is that it can appeal to people who might not have uh, heard it in that sort of way before. Um, or other ways might not really speak to them in the same sort of way. Uh, whereas, you know, you, you try music, you try live art, you try like your Easter walkthroughs, which I thought were uh, just fantastic, you know, all of these sort of different expressions, you know, gives this broader opportunity for people to respond mm. like emotionally or cognitively to these uh, different expressions of the gospel, mm. uh, which is pretty cool. And I mean, perhaps in recent history, that creativity has perhaps been lacking in the church, but I think the church has kind of a long history of um, artistic expression. Like you mentioned Renaissance mm. painting, but I really like architecture as well. And you've got these soaring oh, ceilings, which are all about you know, pointing the gaze upwards and then these incredible stained glass windows and, and all of that. So I'd love to see you know, a real artistic revival yeah. uh, in the city. Yeah. I must say that, I know I kind of maybe you know, as negative on, in terms of maybe like, uh, uh, is, is anything of this happening in our city? There are little pockets of things that go on. Um, there's some guys who play music at Ellington, um, you know, jazz club with a gospel intent, you know. Um, there's little pockets going on, but I suppose what I'm trying to say there is, you know, couldn't there be a, a, a you know, a, a revival of that mm -hmm. space, artistry, gospel-centered artistry? Um, in our city would be amazing. <clears throat> so we've uh, spoken about your journey, your uh, ministry, uh, we've talked about creativity. Um, so just kind of rounding off, I was just wondering, what excites you about kind of the future of kind of ministry or future opportunities? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's two elements to that. The first one I'd say is being the the beautiful opportunity within this COVID season that we've the whole church has been experiencing. For us, it's been a little catalyst to explore what does um, running on two legs where we have a, a larger gathering and a smaller gathering. So for us, we describe it as a temple and table. We describe it as like, what is it to continue to be gathering in a larger setting? Which comes out of Acts 2.46, you know, they gathered every day in the temple courts and in their homes, they broke bread. So this idea of the two, two legs, so, and the table is a powerful place that I think tends to be underestimated in, in our world in the sense that at the table, everyone is seen, everyone is heard. You can't hide at the table, I don't know if you notice that. If you're feeling a bit average and you're sitting at the table, someone should probably ask you, oh, are you okay? You know, you can't hide there. But you're seen, you belong at the table, and all you bring is your hunger, and that's about it. Uh, and I think at the Father's table, we're all invited. And so how we express that at, at someone's home has been a, a wonderful adventure, I think, because people are a bit, it's, it's quite intimate, you know? it's, it's quite vulnerable. Um, and helping people be comfortable and grow in that space has been exciting. So every, the way for us at Red Door, the last Sunday of the month, we don't do a morning service. We encourage people into a house church environment. So running on those two kind of legs, a larger gathering and a smaller gathering, um, I think is a, uh, the smaller gathering is also a wonderful place where you can actually see someone's gifting, see someone's calling and give opportunity for them to operate in that space in a larger gathering, it's, it's harder to ca coordinate that. Um, so, yeah, I suppose part of what excites me is around the spaces of maybe a deconstruction of how we gather, uh, returning to potentially more visibility around those ancient paths, around those ways that we saw the early church gathering. And it's easy to say that, but I suppose. I remember when we stopped doing a Sunday morning service and COVID had kind of passed and now we're still, we're still doing the house church thing. Aren't you going to go back to normal? 
And I'm like, oh yeah, no, we feel like there's something very beautiful about this home space that we don't want to lose here. Uh, and that's been, a, it's been having to be a bit courageous too, because I'm like, oh no, everyone wants to go back to normal, you know, I'm like, yeah, let's, but now we've held that posture for a bit. So I think in that space, we've seen the discipleship um, be enhanced in that, in that space. The, the second quick one is just seeing um, some movement in relationship to unity within the body, uh, within a, in a geographical space. So I felt in this season of calamity, the churches had to gather a little bit together to almost go, well, how, are you, how are you dealing with this? How are you, what are you doing here? And it's kind of forced us into a place of greater relationship and connection um, where we're not kind of at, at distance, at arm's length all the time. We could do another podcast on this, Aaron, um, called Church Unity. Um, but, but in terms of that space, what excites me is the church working together can achieve so much more together than they can apart for a geographical reach. I suppose is the other thing I see that's really exciting me about what the future looks like. Yeah, well, that's, that's fantastic. And I think that's a really good place for us to finish. So Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure, absolute joy. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Caleb, you seem like a creative person. Would you call yourself creative? I think after this conversation, it seems like all of us are creative. So I'm going to go a safe yes. Nice. Yeah, no, I think we are all creative. Uh, what sort of things do you create? Um, I'm a big on interpretive dancing. Yep. I break yep. dance. Um, I've, in my I've free been time. to your shows. They draw, Have you? They draw big crowds. I think you were the guy heckling. Um, <laughs> you were. I saw you, Aaron. I remember <laughs> seeing that. I cried after. It took me. It took me all day just to find those specific rotten tomatoes. <laughs> No, I think uh, I honestly have seen my studies as a creative expression for this time. What about you, Aaron? Yeah, no. You, play, uh, you tap dance, don't you? Uh, just on the side. Wait, you lead the flag ministry at your church, don't you? The flag ministry? Don't back the flag ministry. I'm not. I'm, I, that, was your, that was your contribution to the community. I made the flag poles. Wow. <laughs> from scratch, from bamboo. Yeah, from homegrown bamboo. I do grow bamboo, actually, but... Um... But no, not, not flags or tap dancing, really. Um, I mean, I've always been, yeah, quite arty. I like art. I like... Mm. I like an angsty artist. Yeah, an angsty artist. Um, I, gra I graffiti uh, trains. No, I don't. I, <laughs> I like drawing. I like painting. I like graphic design, that sort of stuff. And I also like creative writing and just, you know, all of that, that side of things. But Adam was... It was just so cool hearing kind of his creative heart and how that connects to ministry, uh, don't you think? Yeah, 100%. I think it was really beautiful to hear. He talked about it a little bit, but the, the, the place of beauty in the Christian tradition and re wanting to recapture that, to me, that's what seemed like the essence behind his creativity or yeah. behind his want and of cultivating creativity in the local church and yeah. um, the local church being a partner with what God is doing through artists and creatives um, to ultimately point back to the most beautiful thing, which is Jesus and, and, and God and the gospel. And that, that seemed really, really, really cool. And I think really, really important because I think we have kind of lost a sense of creativity in um, maybe not in every church or everywhere or whatever, but uh, like I really think that creativity builds authenticity in ministry because everybody creates and everybody creates differently and allowing ourselves to express that creativity in our very particular and unique fashion uh, will just express Jesus in the way that literally no one else can. And I think that is so, so important as opposed to kind of formulaic ways of doing things. Yeah, I think... Um... I think, I mean, you're a history guy and you know the philosophy of history and the way history works out. It isn't always like, oh, the church used to be this, you know, amazing hub of creativity. I think the church was in power and so they had the money to fund these artists and the artists weren't necessarily followers of Jesus, right? So there's all that. But I think 
there's something about, for me, being able right, to be in a beautiful cathedral and look at the stained glass windows and the architecture and things like that. But even, right, like hearing an amazing, um, I used uh, a liner note from a Love Supreme, a John Coltrane album. Um, and it, ultimately, Love Supreme is a metaphor for, for God's love to us. And so to me, that was like so cool. Yeah. Like the, one of the best jazz that albums really cool. of all time nice. was an ode to our creator. But there wasn't like verses, there wasn't, you know, Christian imagery, but just the excellence of art and the yeah. excellence of cre- creative expression to me was really, really cool. And I think that that seems um, like what Adam and his church is trying to cultivate. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, like what you're saying, also you know, Beethoven and Mozart and Bach, these were all expressions of worship, really, like Ode to Joy Yeah, is literally a worship song. Where now it seems like... It's almost like a patriotic sort of anthem or something. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a real... When you read the lyrics, it's, it's a real heartfelt adoration of God. So, yeah, that utilization of kind of creativity and art and all of that, um, I think, is an expression of God and an expression of us as uh, created beings in that image. And it's very cool to see... Adam uh, used that in his particular way. Yeah, no, so I think ultimately our takeaway was just to help and to kind of follow Jesus and allow him in ministry and local church at a grassroots level, but as, and as an individual, as individuals, like to kind of reorient and allow him to continue to expand our theology of beauty and creativity. Yeah. And I think ultimately that seemed... Like, what was that a lot of at the heart of, of what Adam was saying about that? Yeah, yeah, and it keeps coming back to the gospel as well. The yeah. gospel is the most beautiful thing. Yeah, and the most compelling. And it's almost like yeah. these expressions and, and different mediums that we use are ultimately pointing to that. Yeah. What is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. I think that's what Adam said. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what are you going to go create today? Uh, my work. Your work? Yes. It's about time. It is about time. But uh, <laughs> hey, if you're still listening to this, um, don't forget to like, subscribe, review, uh, give Red Door Church a visit. Um, yeah, we hope you are blessed and keep creating. Keep creating and see you next time. See you, kids.